Hello and welcome to the ANA Marketing Futures Podcast. I'm Mike Burbridge, Director of Marketing Futures and your host for this episode. Today I'm chopping it up with Michael Trapani, Director of Marketing for IBM Watson Marketing, about the future of artificial intelligence. Michael shared how advances in AI technology will change the way marketers use data to personalize their message to consumers. He also discussed how his team's able to stay so agile in a constantly changing marketplace and gave us a preview of what's next for IBM Watson. Uh, Michael, thank you so, so much uh, for joining us today. Uh, we have Michael Trapani from IBM Watson, the Director of Marketing. Um, why don't you tell us about yourself and the work you're doing at IBM? Sure. Uh, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Really excited uh, on this snowy afternoon. Um, I, uh, I started my career at Apple, and I was there for about four years, um, and from there moved into the startup world, in particular around the mobile revolution in the late you know, 2008, 2009 timeframe. Uh, worked in that field for a while. Uh, one of those startups was a mobile marketing company that was acquired by IBM, uh, and that's how we got in there. It was about five years ago. And um, yeah, from there, I've been focusing on the product marketing arenas, different areas of the product, um, and currently oversee the marketing organization for our marketing platform that is powered by AI. So that is known as Watson Marketing. So I oversee that, um, work with an amazing team there, and uh, yeah, just really happy to, to be in the industry. There's a lot going on with AI, so uh, really excited mm -hmm. to talk about it. Uh, so now I know um, IBM having presented uh, a lot of great case studies and kind of overviews at ANA events over the years. I know that Watson has um, what I imagine is probably exponentially larger, but a very diverse skill set mm -hmm. um, and that are very categorized and you can kind of mix and match skill sets to get the outputs and the outcomes. Uh, what are the... Um, key elements to Watson that have made the marketing platform so uh, so effective? Yeah, we look at AI, AI is such a broad term, right? It's, it's really the umbrella capability or the umbrella type of category of technology. And at IBM, we focus on specific characteristics that really help us classify different parts of AI. Um, and those characteristics are that it needs to understand endless and you know, seemingly endless amounts of data, um, be able to reason, make kind of decisions based on the data that it's seeing, being able to change those decisions over time. Um, it needs to be able to learn. So if it gets an answer that's not right or it's corrected by a human, it needs to be able to interpret that and uh, maybe a decision has failed and it needs to be able to adjust on the fly. And then it needs to be able to interact with humans in an approachable and understandable way. We're marketers ourselves, um, we take different elements of AI and embed them throughout the platform. So if you look at a traditional marketing cloud, something like a you know, Salesforce marketing cloud or Adobe marketing cloud, um, I think they've, the industry has gotten pretty good about taking things like email marketing and mobile messaging and automating that process for a marketer. But where sometimes there's area for improvement is where you see the ability to interpret what's actually going on, what's actually happening, um, and then being able to recommend or course correct things as anomalies come up in a customer experience. Like if there's a moment of struggle 
in a customer experience, like they're clicking on a button and that button's not working, um, or if they're using a promo code and the promo code isn't giving an example discount that someone's supposed to get. Uh, those moments of struggle can be detected by an AI, raise its hand to the marketer and say, hey, there's something wrong here. You gotta fix it so you don't have to wait for your revenue to decline or abandon cart before you realize there's something wrong. The objective, generally speaking, is that the AI disappears. You don't really notice that it's there and it just feels like really great tools that work really well. Yeah, that's, um, the AI disappears is a very good way of putting it <clears throat> because I feel like it's the next thing to become uh, wireless internet. That it's only when it's not there is there ever any kind of recognition or acknowledgement of its existence. Oh yeah, um, actually Jerry Murray, who's a, a terrific analyst at IDC, has this great quote um, where he said something like, it will be obvious if you don't have AI powering your experience as obvious as not having a mobile optimized website. Mm. It'll be that bad comparison to optimizing your experience with AI. Yeah, well, and I think that that kind of ties into something that marketers have already kind of have to started coming to terms with is that you're not competing in your category. Your expectations are not built upon the thing that looks as similar to your product as yours. Yeah. Um, and so I think, yeah, it really doesn't matter what you're doing or for whom. Yeah, I mean, retailers talk a lot about Amazon, but um, you know, the, some of their biggest competitors are probably Instagram. Just you know, time spent in in digital first, born on mobile applications and experiences that are leaps and bounds ahead of a lot of traditional brands. And brands are trying to catch up. Um, a lot of them are doing it really well, uh, actually, and, and competing on that level. Um, there's that customer experience that I think everyone talks about a lot. We're also really interested in the, the changes of the marketing function and the team and their jobs on a day-to-day -day basis. And I actually see more implications for the marketer doing their work better, faster, easier than I do for the customer. I mean, I think the customer is going to know that experience inside and out, but the marketing teams, I think, are mostly focused on their customer, which they should be, which is great, but I think there's a lot more that they will start to see as benefits of using AI-powered tools um, in any function, whether it's marketing or something else. Tedious, mundane tasks can be automated in the same way that software automated so many routine tasks. I think we're looking at the same level of revolution in getting our work done uh, that we did when we went from you know, no one would have a computer on their desk um, moving to everyone using software in their pockets. For a company who is toward the beginning of that journey, um, <clears throat> I've always believed that, you know, if your culture and your organization aren't right, the best tech stack in the world is not going to do very much, if anything, for you. Um, so, <clears throat> Obviously, the easiest, the, the most transformational case studies always begin with, well, we got a new CMO, or we got a new CEO, or you know something that's very apparent that somebody has been brought in and empowered to make sweeping changes. For organizations that aren't at that point, that don't want to wait until uh, something that drastic needs to happen, um, what is some advice you can give to sort of move the culture towards um, being ready, being receptive for this digital transformation? 
Yeah, I think there are some functional things that a working team can do overall. I'll give you one example of something that we we're doing on our team now. Um, a little over a year ago, we shifted to an agile methodology for our marketing team, um, which is basically leveraging a lot of the product development working functions and uh, methodologies that have developed in the startup world over time, um, like having you know two-week sprints, having daily stand-ups, having planning sessions and retrospectives, everybody talking to each other for 15 minutes every day, understanding what everyone's working on. Um, it's a big shift and it takes a lot of time and there are some growing pains, but it's something that a functional team can do today. You don't need you know, management approval or, or you know, CMO approval to make that change. And what that does is it gets everybody talking to each other. It gets this ability to pivot quickly, make changes. You're quickly looking at results as they come in because you're talking all the time. You're breaking down a lot of those team silos that a lot of teams have, like product marketing versus demand generation versus web. Um, getting those teams talking to each other every day is a huge benefit. And when that happens, you start to question, or it becomes a lot more obvious, when things that everybody needs to do, you start to see alignment, you start to see consistency, and you can kind of go as a team to leadership if that needs to be a, kind of the kind of change you're looking for. Um, but what it also does is it allows you to use really simple tools like Trello, like um, GitHub, like things that, are, that um, a lot of product teams have been using to manage projects really easily. Um, and I think with those changes on a team functional level, it helps you drive perspectives as a unit and it becomes a much more vocal, much more powerful type of organizational demand. Um, and it's actually a, a great way to, to get connected better with your teams and you know, uh, I learn so much from my team every day, so understanding that is, is really great, getting that knowledge across the org. Very, very cool. Yeah. Um, I want to just take one step deeper into that. Sure. Because I really yeah, think yeah, that, yeah. that is great. Like, I think that that's, you know, uh, for all of the keynotes, just one thing that you can do this week, I yeah. think, is so helpful for our members. Um, so this 15-minute standing meeting, mm -hmm. what is the kind of prompt that begins the kind of quick discourse? Yep. Um, so the it, it helps a lot. So this is something that any structured team that exists today can start. There are things you can do that make that process easier and faster, and we learn that the hard way. Um, but at a very minimum, you have at least one representative from every function in the standup. Um, so in our world, we have product marketing, we have um, our campaign manager, we have uh, the digital web team, we have um, events, we have content, right? So, and, and maybe a couple of others, but you know, five to ten people usually in the room. Everyone's standing up. Um, it's better to do these in the morning. And you go around the room. You talk about things that you're working on today. Um, one or two things, quick hits. Um, things that you're going to be working on tomorrow, or something that you've accomplished. You know, I closed this task out today. Um, a lot of times you're looking at a board with sticky notes on it or using something like Trello that has all of your tasks on there. Um, and you say, hey, you know, I closed this out yesterday. That's complete. It's ready for review for you, right, who is also in the room. I'm working on this today. Um, and this is a roadblock that I'm having that I need someone's help with. Who can help me with this? Or, oh, I know you're here you know, from the digital team. Um, we, need, I mean, we need your help. We need to set up a new page. Some, some new thing came up. 
everyone goes around the room and talks for like 30 seconds each. Um, and that's one of the hardest parts because there's a lot of context that people want to bring to the meeting. Um, but really, you're just saying those three things, uh, going around the room. And, um, and then at the end of that 15 minutes, you have the opportunity to do what we call an after party, which is if there were clarifications or questions or, hey, I want to talk offline about what you just said. Um, I'm curious you know, or I have some questions to help. Um, you can have those conversations kind of one-on-one. -on -one. So the whole team isn't bogged down with, I mean, how many meetings have you been in where you're like, do I need to be in this meeting right now? Like, this is, you know, I was, this is relevant for like five minutes, and, yeah. right? I mean, I think everyone could align with that. I'm gonna plead the fifth on that, but yeah. I'm just gonna <laughs> yeah. really. Yeah, he's shaking his head, <laughs> yeah. no, yeah. Digital advertising, we are still, uh, you know, 10, 15, 20 years into it, still really trying to get to that initial promise mm. of this knowing, personal, not wasteful marketing that's just better for uh, the giver and the receiver. But there's a lot of obstacles that we're still um, dealing with. Data, one of them. GDPR kind of sent ripples uh, throughout the world marketing industry. California's like, hold my beer. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, we're waiting <laughs> um, on that. You know, wait, wait till you see the, the new regulations on this. Um, so in that kind of, that hold frenzy. Hold my IPA. Yes, yeah. yes. <laughs> well done. Um, <laughs> So what, are, what do you see as the major uh, kind of broad challenges for marketers in 2019? Yeah, I think you're spot on with a lot of those things. I think what's interesting, though, when you mentioned GDPR and marketing regulations overall sending ripple effects, I agree that they happened. We did some really interesting research last year as GDPR was rolling out, and it was something that we do pretty regularly. We do a marketing benchmark report, which is where we look at all the metrics of campaign performance in different industries, in different countries, um, who does really well through open rates, through engagement rates. It's a really, you know, really cool, really dense report for the wonks out there that really want to see how do I benchmark my goals as a company, as a marketer. Um, but last year, we did a really focus on countries that have strong regulations around marketing, because we knew that everyone was talking about GDPR. And we found something really shocking. We found that in countries that already have strong marketing regulations, in particular Canada and Australia, which have, you know, you remember CanSpam and all that stuff, mm -hmm. um, and Australia has some regulations as well, marketing performance is the best in the world in those regions. So. Uh, you know, when you hear that, you're like, what? And then you think about it for two seconds, you're like, well, if, if there is a lot of strict kind of how valuable is this going to be, um, it helps build trust, I think, with consumers. And that turns out to go a long way with how your marketing will actually perform. So while there are these scary regulations, uh, uh, an industry like advertising and, and marketing is not as used to being regulated. Um, you know, in, in many industries. So I think it's scary for a lot of people, but there's good news. And I think it actually means that things will be better. Uh, your performance, your marketing will improve as a result of that transparency, that improved transparency. You mentioned customer expectations, uh, comparing yourself to other industries, the best digital experience they've ever had. John Chang on, on my product marketing team is, uh, he has this great quote where he says, um, you know, the, the Met 
you know, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, their top competitor is not the Guggenheim, it's Netflix. It's entertainment, it's culture, it's art in a different format that's much easier to consume and an overall really simple experience. So how do you compete with that? Um, so customer expectations are really high. Um, and then the last piece was the first thing that I talked about, I think, that, that privacy area. Because there's this paradox, right? A marketer, sorry, a customer wants a great, personalized, consistent experience, but they don't want to share the personalized data that would easily facilitate that experience. So it's a balance. Um, and I think, uh, you know, it's where some of the ele elements where AI does come to help. So I know hyper-personalization was one of the things that IBM was focused on uh, kind of on the onset of 2019. Uh, so what is that term? Because that term gets bandied about a lot. Um, so what does that mean to you and to IBM Watson? Um, is it just kind of the next level of multivariate uh, versioning? Or is it, you know? Yeah, I think um, testing is a big part of the personalization legacy because we learn a lot through testing. Um, I don't think multivariate testing is going away anytime soon. Uh, people will always do that because it gives you real world responses. I think over time though, um, different components of machine learning will start to do a lot of that testing in advance, be able to apply those learnings to the next time around. So I'll give you an example. Um, the way certain algorithms in advertising technology work today is there is a cold start where I'm bidding, let's say, on an ad unit for different publishers. Um, I'm bidding for different spaces. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a DSP, and I'm making a lot of decisions on where to place my ads. There is a cold start, and over time, it kind of warms up. It gets smarter. It learns. It processes over time. But every time you launch a new campaign, you start off cold, you warm up, then you get hot, and you're really on you know, track, targeting the right people, hitting the right audience, delivering the best ads. What we're starting to see with using uh, different applications of machine learning is looking at not starting off cold at every campaign, but instead starting off warm. And what I mean by warm, I mean taking every single learning that you took from every other campaign you've ran before that, applying all those learnings to the start of your campaign, so you're starting kind of halfway to the finish line already, um, and being able to really kick off your campaigns already targeted. Um, we're seeing just insane numbers um, internal at IBM where we're testing a lot of this stuff. Um, it's it's you know it's a little ridiculous. Um, it's almost like you know how did we not try something like this, but I think the technology is getting to a point where you can embed AI engines into a demand-side platform, you can embed them into personalization engines, um, and really modernize your personalization algorithms and have them build themselves as real-world performance takes place. Um, so hyper-personalization, to answer your, your initial question, I think, is, um, is delivering on that promise of a one-to-one -one experience, where I think the AI changes that is if you look at a CRM-focused type of personalization structure, you're focusing on collecting as much personal data as you can, organizing it really structured, lay it out well. Um, we think that has the potential to, to invade privacy a little bit more. I think customers are getting more concerned about giving their personal data. Um, and so where the AI comes in is that can, rather than consume personal data to personalize, it can take aggregate trends um, and 
because it can read that data a lot better and smarter and faster than a, you know, a, a, a typical algorithm, um, it can work just as well. And so you're, you're ending a lot of that concern around privacy, but um, you know, I think there's, there's gonna be a balance, I think an interim period, um, where you're doing a little bit of both, um, working the traditional and then moving off. Um, but I think that's the future, where we're looking at less of a, an invasion of privacy, or even if it's opted in, collecting mm -hmm. less of it, not needing it, uh, but still delivering that hyper-personal experience that doesn't feel like you're you know, being forced to do something you don't want to do. It's just um, something that feels organic to whatever you're doing. That's really, yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so we're getting away from owning personas and when the next campaign, you have the things to plug into, just being able to re-identify that cohort or that tribe or that moment or that tendency to where you don't need to store it because recreating it or finding it again is a fraction of a second. Yeah, and I think behaviors are a lot more indicative than people think, um, which I think is is a good thing because it means that you know we can. I don't know. I feel like with advertising, um, a lot of people in the industry talk about it like it's you know we're we're changing the world, right? It's like okay, you know we're we're selling stuff, which is uh, which is important, but I think it's it's meaningful um, to understand, especially with an ad that getting it right 100% of the time is, is great. That would be ideal. If you serve the wrong ad to someone, um, the world doesn't end, right? right? Um, and you, you lose maybe a, a half a penny in, in your spend. Um, you want to eliminate that as much as you can through yield. Um, it changes entirely once you start talking about owned channels, like email and, mm -hmm. and mobile push and SMS. and. You know, when you're sending someone a medical bill or a bank statement, there is zero room for error, and right. you have to get that right every single time. So that is where I think customers become more comfortable with sharing that type of information. Here's my email address, send me an email. That's, that's pretty obvious. Um, but it, the stakes become a lot higher to get things right. Right now, we're, I mean, if you think about where we were, um, in the advent of software, I, I talk a lot about the Apollo missions and how it was one of the first broad use cases of software um, actually being used in a high-stakes environment to land on the moon. Um, if you think about what that code looked like, there's a great photograph of Margaret Hamilton who's standing next to her handwritten code and the stack is taller than she is, who, who led the flight software team. Mm -hmm. um, Looking at that, and we kind of chuckle at how primitive the, the use cases are from software back in the 60s to now, where you know, I think we're in that stage of artificial intelligence, where we're going to look back 50 years from now and be like, huh, remember when we were like, worrying about this stuff? And, and that's what our, what our software, what our AI looked like. Um, there's, a, there's a tremendous amount of benefit that's coming, because while the, the, the field of research is in one place. They're kind of already 10 steps ahead of the commercial use of AI right now. So even if they stop today doing any AI research and the field grinds to a halt, which I don't think is gonna happen, but let's say that it did, there's still like 10 years worth of innovation that the commercial and business um, uh, industries are going to employ um, and we're 
you know, we're still getting there. So it's really exciting. So before we wrap up, I've got a couple of really, you know, surprise left field questions, very vital stuff. But before we get to that, <laughs> um, IBM just uh, wrapped up its internal kind of meeting of all of the minds, IBM Think in San Francisco. There are two or three kind of things that really fascinated or struck you, uh, some kind of standouts from the, uh, from the week? Yeah, um, two quick things. The first was with our marketing automation tools, we embedded some areas of AI into our automated programs capability. So when you're building a campaign that's multi-step, I'm going to send this email, then they're going to get this message, then on three days later they're going to get that. If they click on this, do that. Um, the ability to embed AI into that experience to detect anomalies. Um, so we talked a little bit about this earlier, but mm -hmm. if you're getting a you know, huge spike in engagement rates on your mobile push notifications, um, you're doing something really well or maybe something really bad, but either way, you really need to know about it. Um, so the ability to detect those things um, and be notified of those things without really um, having to constantly monitor campaigns. So you can like go to lunch as a marketer, which is really great. Yes. Uh, it's the exciting, that's the things we look forward to every day. That should just be the sales Yeah, match. go to lunch. Remember lunch. Yeah, Remember? <laughs> yeah. yeah. that was really cool. Um, the other really cool thing we started talking about is, uh, is search. Um, and uh, I don't know, I, if you think about search engines like Google, you could, they're great. Everybody loves search, right? There was before Google, there was after Google as far as doing you know, search engines and connecting the web. Um, you can find just about anything you want. And it's frustrating then that when you're on a website trying to find something, it's just, it couldn't be more different than that experience. And that's why I think it's because typical on-site search is done through keywords. So if I'm trying to fix a sink, uh, I might go to a you know, home uh, improvement store and make a search, you know, how to fix a sink. And what I'll see in those search results are new sinks. And now I'm just looking at the worst case scenario, like oh, my God, I gotta buy a thousand dollar sink, like I just have a leak here, like, you know, it's just a bad experience. So I go back to Google and I search the same thing and what do I see? All of your competitors, right? It's not a great experience. Uh, but what if it could be done differently? What if AI could power the search query so that you're not just seeing what someone's looking for, you see the word sync and it pulls up the pages that have the word sync on them, keyword based, and you get a sense of intent in the search. What stage of the customer journey am I in? Am I just looking for what the problem is? Am I really looking to buy something? Maybe, sometimes. Um, am I looking for how-to videos from my YouTube channel? Um, am I looking for questions from our customer community? The ability to take search and understand intent is game-changing because you can pull from all corners of the web, from different assets that you have. Like I said, how-to videos. You know, those results will look a lot more like how-to videos from my YouTube channel, um, parts of a sync that I might need that will help me fix it, um, and then like posts from my customer forum about ways that they've solved this problem on their own. Um, so we created this product, Personalized Search, which does just that. Uh, it's coming out this year, we're really excited, and uh, we think it's gonna be a game changer, especially for retailers. So Michael, before we let you go, uh, 
We have two questions. Like I said, we ask every guest, um, what's your favorite album of all time? Oh, man. And what song are you listening to right now? I want to give you a very accurate answer, so I'm going to pull out my Apple Music here. Love it. All right. All time, right? I'm a, I grew up as kind of a... My, my music tastes are very strange. I have a mix of... Um, I think I, I grew up as kind of a metalhead. Best, best album, I mean, if I'm going Metallica, probably Injustice for All, um, you know, Master of Puppets, kind of the, the 80s uh, for those albums. But when I'm working, I can't listen to words. Same. Right? I think a lot of people are like that. So mm -hmm. I listen to a mix of um, rough jazz uh, and classical music that are big orchestras. So um, sometimes, I mean, again, this is where the spectrum gets all over the place. Um, something like a metal I'll listen to, um, but then if I'm working, I'll find something that's you know, big, still kind of bold and loud um, that an orchestra will do, maybe a big opera or something that I'll listen to if I'm trying to be you know, lost in my thoughts. Um, jazz, if I need to do something really fast mm -hmm. and like I need to have, almost have a soundtrack to what I'm doing. Um, so if I'm listening to jazz, a lot of drums, a lot of, uh, you know, uh, songbirds, a lot of stuff like that. So really like that for music. And then what was the other question about? So what are you listening to now? Um, now I'm, I'm on a kick of 60s um, rock. So think the lineup of Woodstock 69. For whatever reason, it. right? I'm like Jefferson Airplane, Jimi Hendrix, um, Joe Cocker, just like, I don't know, there's just something about that era that I've always found, like it felt like if you watch any of the footage or anything like that from, from those outdoor concerts, it felt like they were in different worlds from, from whatever else was going on. And it was almost like this journey that everybody was on together. Uh, and uh, that's a cool kind of setup. And it, I think it changed a lot in the music space. So uh, huge Beatles fan too. So um, I like Revolver on their side. But yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm listening to a lot of that. Um, I think there needs to be more rock out there, you know? I mean, I love, I love hip hop and R&B, and I, I listen to all sorts of music, but um, I feel like we've, uh, we've lost a lot of the strength in, in the, the, you know, the albums that are coming out of rock music, but I know it's different trends out there, so. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I love a lot of music that's out there now, but I definitely move into the, uh, the instrumental type of music. Definitely, definitely. Yeah. Uh, thank you again so much for being with, uh, with us today. This was Michael Trapani, Director of Marketing for IBM Watson Marketing. Uh, this is the ANA Marketing Futures Podcast, and you heard it here first. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the ANA Marketing Futures Podcast. If you have an idea for a guest or a topic for a future episode, shoot us a note to marketingfutures at ana.net. Make sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcast and leave us a review. Let us know how we're doing. The Marketing Futures Podcast releases a new episode every other week. But if you want more insights and resources on AI right now, we've got you covered. For a free download of our AI report, head to marketingfutures.ana.net.